Um, so, but we are glad that everyone is here. I just want to remind you, if you put me onto my message slides, thank you very much, that uh, since some will be only be watching or listening to the message, to remind you to check in. We want to know that you're here even if you're listening or watching a little bit later. So download our app or go to this website, or if you're here, use the card if you haven't done that already, to check in. We are in a series that we just started last week called Reboot, and the whole idea is to get fresh perspectives and to have a clean slate as the new year begins. And I told you that uh, part of the inspiration for last week's message, which is carrying over into this week's message, was something that I noticed and learned as I was reading through that Bible project uh, reading plan at the very beginning, something I had never noticed about creation, and we're just kind of kind of diving deep on that. And today we're talking about the rest of the story, because this is kind of part two to last week. And uh, last week and this week, we have been talking about structure or form. And what we are saying is that God forms and fills. If you're taking notes, this is the bottom line at the top of your notes. God forms and fills our lives with good things. God forms and fills our lives with good things. And so the application is to surrender the structure of your life to Jesus. And what we said was this week, we would take that general principle and we were going to apply it to three aspects of life where God gives form or structure to our lives and fills our lives with good things. Those three aspects are our schedule, our sexuality, and our finances. Now I've got your attention. <laughs> I noticed a couple of eyes perk up. Just be aware this is a G-rated message, uh, but so you don't have to worry about that. But that is what we are talking about today. Uh, three aspects, our schedule, our sexuality, and our finances, where God provides structure or form in order to bless us. Now, what I'm going to do for the scripture passage today is I'm going to read through a particular passage that has more to do with the idea of schedule, and then we're going to come back to that, but I kind of want to give you the context for what we're going to be talking about. And I'm going to read it a little bit differently than I usually do because we're not going to go in depth in this scripture. So I want to make sure that I point out a couple of things to you. If you'd like to follow along, it's Hebrews 4, chapter, chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. But I'm going to be reading it as a, uh, from a different translation than I usually do. I'm going to be reading it from the message translation. So if you're using the device, you can follow along, use the message translation. This is what it says. Uh, For as long then as the promise of resting in him pulls us on to God's goal for us. Now we're picking this up in the middle of the conversation. And what the uh, author of Hebrews is doing is using this idea of a Sabbath rest that was promised, but then it seems like was not fulfilled. And a particular Uh, reference, I think it's from Psalm 95 or 96, and he's kind of exegeting, kind of walking us through that. So we're picking it up in the middle. It's talking about the idea of a Sabbath rest and how it ties into the gospel. For as long then as the promise of resting in him pulls us on to God's goal for us, we need to be careful that we're not disqualified. We received the same promises as those people in the wilderness But the promises didn't do them a bit of good because they didn't receive the promises with faith. If we believe, though, we'll experience that state of resting. But if not, if we we don't have faith, 
Remember that God said, exasperated, I vowed, they will never get where they're going, never be able to sit down and rest. God made that vow, even though he'd finished his part before the foundation of the world. Somewhere it's written, I love that whenever I can't remember a reference to a particular Bible verse, often in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says, somewhere it's written, so I take encouragement from that. (laughs) Somewhere it is written, God rested the seventh day having completed his work, but in again, but but in a But in the other text, he says, they will never be able to sit down and rest. So this promise has not been fulfilled. Those earlier ones didn't get, those earlier ones, people, never did get to the place of rest because they were disobedient. God keeps renewing the promise and setting the date as today. Just as he did in David's psalm, centuries later than the original invitation, today, please listen, don't turn a deaf ear, verse eight. And so this is still a live promise. It wasn't canceled at the time of Joshua, otherwise God wouldn't keep renewing the appointment for today. What's he talking about there? He's saying God promised rest, the Sabbath rest, but Joshua led the people into the promised land. But much later, King David said there's still this promise of rest. So he's saying it can't be when they went and dwelled in the promised land. It has to be something else. And that day is set as today. The promise of arrival and rest is still there for God's people. God himself is at rest and at the end of the journey, we'll surely rest with God. So let's keep at it and eventually arrive at the place of rest, not drop out through some sort of disobedience. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we look at your word and as we study and apply it today, Lord, I pray that you would speak to each one of us Lord, what a privilege it is to know that you still speak, that you speak through your word, through your Holy Spirit, through your people. And I pray, Lord, that as we gather today, that that's exactly what happens. Whether people are right here listening, watching online, or listening much later, your spirit is there. It is today for us. So I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us that you would help us to know exactly how to, what we need to know from this message and exactly how to apply it so that we might benefit from it. And pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so background. Last week, we looked at the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The next phrase is this, the earth was formless and empty. And we uh, talked about how I had never made the connection. Maybe you're smarter than this. Maybe you had noticed this before. But this description of the world, the state of the world as formless and empty is what God is going to correct in the days of creation. And so we looked at these graphics, how in the first three days, he is creating form. He's giving structure to this formless void. And then in days three through six, he is is filling that void. It's no longer empty because he's filling it with good stuff. And then we get to that seventh day when all of creation is done 
and God rest. And we pointed out how in each of these days, it says there was evening, there was morning. And then in the last day, that phrase is missing, which suggests to us that God's ultimate goal was that we would live in this state, the state of perfect completion of rest. And so we see that not only was he forming it, but he was filling it, and he was filling it with good things. The summary statement at the end, this is actually wrong. It's right in your growth guide. This is Genesis 131. Then God looked over all he had made and saw that it was very good. So he takes a formless void and he gives structure and form to it and he fills it with good things. He continues to do that and that's how, what we're gonna talk about today and look at these ways that he continues to give form and structure to our life in order to bless us, in order to fill our lives with good things. To paint the picture for this, I want to look at just one verse from the prophet Jeremiah, which I think kind of sums up this theme. Uh, if you've been watching the Chosen TV series, they reference this, and this, this would be a good thing to kind of plant that in your mind. You see in that series, Peter and the Roman rebuilding the cistern, this is the same kind of idea. He references it. For my people, this is the Lord speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, for my people have done two evil things. What are the evil things that they have done? They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. Uh, throughout, uh, not just the Bible, but throughout literature, uh, water is a symbol of life, it is life-giving. You can't have life without water. And so he's saying, I, the Lord, am the source of this living water, an abundant spring that never runs dry. But what people, my people have done is they've tried to dig cisterns for themselves, structure, and they've tried to fill it themselves the filling part, but the problem is that when you do this for your, yourself, when you reject God, his creative work, his created order, and the way that he wants to fill our lives with those things, and you instead try to build your own cistern and fill it yourself, you're going to end up with cracked cisterns that hold no water at all. The form or structure is broken, and therefore, it will end up being empty. So let's look at these three aspects of how God provides structure and order and then fills our lives with good things. And we'll start with the idea of the Sabbath. If you're taking notes, first fill in the blanks there for this point is that we function best when we take time to rest. We function best when we take time to rest. God is providing for us an order or structure to our schedule in order to benefit and to bless us. Jesus described it this way when he was talking about the Sabbath, when he said in Mark 2.27, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of the people. It was designed to provide a blessing 
for you, his people, and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. It wasn't supposed to be a burden. It is supposed to be a blessing. So let's talk about what the Sabbath is. Back in Genesis, we read this last week, on the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation, so he rested from all his work. There is a Bible Project blog post that I gave you a reference to in your growth guide, so you'll see that there. They point out that there are two words that are used for this idea of rest. Now, what's the situation? Was God just tuckered out because he had been working so hard? That's like, no, God does not get tired. He rested though. The idea here is of ceasing. It's of stopping. That when you, when the, when the whistle blows at the end of your day, you stop, you cease working. It may not mean for you that the work is done. It may not mean that a particular project is done, but you stop, you cease working. It goes on to say in these verses, and God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day when he rested, when he ceased, when he stopped, when he completed all of his work of creation. So that's one idea, the idea of ceasing, stopping, even if the to-do list is not over, even if there is still more to be done, even if there are projects to be done, it is possible to stop or to cease. That's part of the idea of rest. The other is the idea of coming to rest. If I had a little toy car and I rolled it against the, uh, on the floor here, eventually it would come to rest, right? It would stop. Or I could take that car and I could place it in a parking spot. I would set it down as a place to rest. That's the second idea. And this blog post pointed out that this actually shows up in the creation narrative as well in chapter two, when it says, God took the man and set him down. That's the idea of coming to rest, of dwelling, of abiding, of placing someone, set him down in the Garden of Eden to work the ground and to keep it in order. So when you think about the idea of a Sabbath rest, God designed us in this particular way. Do you know that during the French Revolution, they redid their calendar because they were trying to get rid of everything God. And they were saying, we'll simplify things. We'll make 10 day weeks and three weeks in a month. And that's how we'll do our schedule. It, it, it didn't work because there is something that is created in us in this seven-day schedule. People hated a 10-day work week. <laughs> they did not like that. You can imagine why. It worked great for the calendar. It did not work great for the people. Why? Because there is something in us. God has created us for this schedule. The idea of, so it's, there is a time where you cease from working. You need to rest. You need to cease. And the idea of dwelling or stay, settling, being settled, makes me think of what Jesus said in John 15, 5, when he said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain, those who rest, those who dwell, who abide in me will produce much fruit. I think that's so interesting because our idea is we got to keep working, 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 never stop, never stop, never take a rest, never cease. That's when we'll be productive and fruitful. 
And the way you are designed is you're going to be most fruitful when you take that break to cease, when you dwell in, remain in, come to rest in him. And he goes on to say, for apart from me, you can do nothing. So practically speaking, how do we apply that? Establish the habit of taking a weekly Sabbath, a time where you cease and you rest from your work. That gives you rest and recuperation. It also gives and has for centuries, for millennia, an opportunity to abide in your heavenly father and in his son. And we do that through worshiping together. You set aside time in your schedule to rest, to cease from your usual labors, and to rest in, abide in your heavenly father. What does that do? It's an, it's an exercise in trust. Because if we say, oh no, I've got to keep working, I've got to keep working, I can't, I can't stop, I have to finish this, I have to do this, I have to do this. What are you saying? You're saying, it's all up to me. And if I stop working, then nothing is going to happen. And what this does is say, nope, I recognize that God is the one who makes me fruitful and productive and that he's never going to give me more in a day than, I, than he expects of me in a day. So I will rest as an exercise in faith. Now, you may be familiar with the idea that, especially in the Old Testament, they were talking about Saturday. They were talking about the seventh day, that that was the Sabbath. Then from the beginning of the Christian era, because Jesus was discovered to be raised on the first day of the week, that became their day of worship. And that's why we gather and we have our Sabbath, as it were, on a Sunday. But it doesn't really matter. For me, Sunday is a work day. It's one of the most exhausting days of my week. So what do I do? I take from the time I get home on Sunday, usually until Monday evening. That's my Sabbath break. That works for me because it's the absolute farthest point in the week away from next Sunday. (laughs) So I can't do it on Saturday. I can't do it on Friday because by then I'm ramping up for what's going to happen on Sunday. But when I get home after Sunday morning, then I can rest. I can cease. And I usually go to eat something and go to sleep. (laughs) But I'm exhausted because I have given, but it's time for me to cease. And generally speaking, that is my time. Now, another idea that I really like is people have suggested if, um, if your work is very sedentary, you're behind a desk a lot, then use your Sabbath to do something active. Go hiking, go you know, do something like that. That's okay. It's, it's the change that is as good as a rest. So sometimes I do that. I might have projects that I do. They're, they're stuff that's productive, but it's recreational in the sense that it's different. It's not my usual work. I've ceased from those labors in order to do something else. And then obviously being with your brothers and sisters in Christ, being focused on that, that's an important part of that as well. Now, before we move on, because this is where I'm spending the most, of the most of the time, I want you to note that 
you are probably at some point in your life going to encounter someone who will say to you, oh, no, 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 no. No, in order to please God, in order to be truly saved, you have to observe the Sabbath in this way, on this day. That's wrong. That is not the case. Let me tell you exactly where, because I, was, I almost got wrapped up in this. Oh, you can't celebrate birthdays. You can't celebrate Christmas. You have to observe the Sabbath on a Saturday. When I was a young believer, there was a, a group that was, uh, that was trying to draw me in. And then I read the Bible. This is a good point, to, a, good, a good time to do that whenever you're, you're thinking about, mm, should I make a major change? Why don't we read the Bible? Uh, this is Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. So don't let anyone condemn condemn you for not celebrating certain holy days or new moons or new moon ceremonies or sabbaths that's the old that is done away with Jesus the principle of the sabbath remains and in fact it's been it's been uh, infused with new life and that's what that passage is talking about and that we'll get back to in just a second but that is not a law it is not a salvation issue. Take a second later and also look at Romans chapter 14. I was going to read that to you, but we're going to go forward because of time. So that's that. Secondly, let's talk about the structure and form of our sexuality. Here's the fill in the blank. There is design in our distinctions. There is design in our distinctions. There is a large section of our world right now that says that our sexuality is fluid, it is accidental, it is cultural. But if you read the Bible, if you read the scriptures, and you see how we were created, this is what it says in Genesis 1.27. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, the reason that I did this left justified and also in your growth guides as well is for I, I wanted you to see the Hebrew poetic structure of this. Remember, we've talked about this before when we were going through the Psalms, that there's, there's often parallelism. So there's a summary statement, God created human beings in his own image, and there are two other statements that are in parallel to one another. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. What is in parallel here? Image and male and female. What does that mean? That means that in order to accurately reflect the image of God, you need both men and women, male and female. Each of them adds a unique and distinct aspect to the image of God, and only together can you accurately see the image of God. Now, here's what I want, um, I want for us Number one, I want us to have extreme clarity on this issue as believers and as followers in Jesus. I also want us to have extreme compassion and kindness for those who believe or experience differently. I'm not saying that they're right, but I am saying that this is an issue. If I were to come to you, for example, and say, oh, according to the Quran, according to the prophet Muhammad, you're not supposed to have art that, dis that displays the images of people or animals. And so by having that portrait hanging in your house, that is wrong. And you should take that down because of the Quran and because of Muhammad. What would you say to that? 
I, I don't believe, <laughs> I don't accept the authority of the Quran. I don't believe that Muhammad was a prophet. So that has no authority over me. So when you come to a secular person and say, well, the Bible says this and God created us like this, they don't believe that. They don't have that in common. So you're, you're not only are your arguments going to fall on deaf ears, they are actually going to repel people. It's what the Apostle Paul did. When he was speaking to, to Jewish audiences, he would start with God as creator and the, and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because they had that in common. They shared those perspectives and those assumptions of life. But when he was speaking to pagans on Mars Hill, he started with, oh, I see this idol that you have to an unknown God. And I read in your, uh, in your poetry that it's in him, in God, that we live and move and breathe. Let me introduce you to this unknown God that you've been worshiping. He's the creator who, uh, who set everything in motion and is now letting people know who he is and he's revealed himself in his son, Jesus. Do you see the two different approaches there based on the two different assumptions and convictions? What if the apostle Paul had gone in and said, you guys are so stupid. Look at all these stupid idols. Are you dumb? Just worship the one true God, the God of the Israelites. Like, get with the program. Do you think he would have been effective by insulting them? I'm telling you that when people have confusion or different convictions about sexuality, it's not because they're stupid or evil. We believe that they're deceived, but you would have compassion on someone. Jesus had compassion. You know, his strictest condemnations were for religious people because of their lack of care and compassion, because of their legalistic rule-keeping and pride, shall I go on? What do we reflect? Who, who, who did he have kind words for? Who did he receive in? He told them, sin no more, go and sin no more. But the people that he had compassion on were people who were sexually immoral, like the woman caught in adultery, like the prostitute who came and anointed his feet. He had compassion on people who were deceived and under the control of demonic spirits like Mary Magdalene. He had compassion and called to even be his followers, people who were sellouts to their people and thieves of their uh, for their brothers and sisters like Levi the tax collector, like Zacchaeus the tax collector. I'm just, I want us to have clarity but I also want us to have Christ-likeness in the way that we deal with people who have different convictions and different experiences than we do. It is the kindness of God that draws people to repentance, the Apostle Paul said, and I think we would do well to reflect that kind of kindness as well. Now, notice what it goes on to say, and I'll move quickly here. Right after that, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Uh, that's because in God's design, the distinctions are important. And it, it, there are two aspects of marriage. Uh, number one, you come together in sexual intimacy in the context of marriage because that's the best context for children. It's the only way that children can come into being, uh, even now. And uh, it is the 
best context, and this isn't a Bible thing, this isn't a Jesus thing, this is a social sciences, this is an observational thing, that the best context for children to grow up in is in a family with the mother and the father. That doesn't mean that others don't work hard and others can't do a good job, but generally speaking, if you want to set up your children best for life, you let them grow up with their mother and father. And then it also is designed for uh, sexual intimacy is designed to bind you together with your life partner. It goes on in Genesis 2.24 to say, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. The whole idea is that sexual intimacy has the ability and the power and is designed to glue you together emotionally with another person. Have you ever been gluing something with super glue and you get a little bit on your fingers and you're stuck together or you touch something with a little bit of super glue on your hand and you're like, oh, that's, it's painful and difficult to get yourself disengaged, right? And uh, because that's not designed. You're, you're not designed to take a bath in super glue and then go through your day. That would be a painful and difficult situation in life. And when you use the super glue of sexual intimacy unwisely and injudiciously, then what you're doing is you are constantly gluing yourself to others and then ripping yourself apart from others. It, now, eventually, you'll gain some scar tissue and scab over a little bit, and you know you might get used to the idea of doing that, but it's never less dangerous and destructive. That's always the case. Sexual intimacy binds you irrationally to another person, which is wonderful in the context of marriage. It's a horrible idea when you're deciding who to marry. So that's the design. Now, again, back to the idea of compassion, just a couple of verses on that. What business is it of mine? This is the Apostle Paul speaking to judge those outside of the church. Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those on the outside. This is the idea of pronouncing condemnation on someone. They can be wrong, but you don't condemn them you would show them compassion. And I think this is what Jesus did. And in fact, this is what it says. Now, note, this is his looking at people who's co-religionists, other Jewish people. And this is what he says. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Let's move on. Lastly, the idea of our resources or finances. And here's what I'm going to say to that. There's a structure that God has put in place, and giving a tithe is right, it's appropriate, and makes the most of what's left. Makes the most of what's left. Uh, this is, number one, based on the conviction that, uh, that there's a percentage of what you have that belongs to God, and that percentage is 100%. <laughs> Everything that we have belongs to him. There is a biblical precedent, not a law for us as believers, but an ongoing precedent that predates the law and continues into the New Testament of a tithe, which means just 10%. 
that, uh, that's, that's the simple meaning of it. There's nothing more uh, unique or special about it than that. But the idea that a tithe is given back to honor and to rep- recognize God as the source of all things. It's kind of like when you set aside a part of your week, when you cease from your labors, what are you doing? You're saying, I trust God. I can, I can rest because he's gonna take care of the rest. When you give a tithe, you're saying, I can do this because I'm going to trust God with the rest. And the overwhelming testimony of people that I have seen do this personally is that that 90% goes much farther than the 100% any uh, ever did. Here is my theory as to why that is, because 10% is a significant enough amount that you have to be better at managing or stewarding the rest of it. You just get better at doing it. And I think that's part of it. Uh, Here's the 100% idea. Uh, In Deuteronomy, it says, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. It's all up to me. But remember the Lord your God because it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. If you've ever been taken out by a sickness or an injury, you will become very familiar with this concept. Uh, It is not your power and your strength, but it is God who gives you the ability to do that. Now, I said that it is not a law, but a principle. It is an example, a principle. Uh, precept that we see throughout the scriptures. But here is the Apostle Paul speaking about how to decide. You must each decide in your own heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or under response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. And then he goes on to say, so you give according to what you want to give, you desire to give, you give cheerfully. What's God's part of it? He will generously provide all you need so you have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. So today, we've been talking about structure, how God forms and fills our lives with good things, and in particular, in these three aspects. So here is my application for this. We, like Prophet Jeremiah talked about, like God talked about through the Prophet Jeremiah, have a tendency to try to dig our own cisterns, to decide for ourselves, as we saw in the Bible Project video, what is right and wrong. We're, we, we think we're better at that than God. So we'll form and structure our lives the way that we think makes sense and try to fill it with good things. But the problem is that we build broken cisterns that don't hold any water. So by accepting God's creative design in all these aspects of our lives, what we are doing is surrendering the structure of our life to Jesus. Remember the idea of the seventh day that you come to the point where God has created, formed, and filled the world with all of these good things. And we are, remember there's, there's, there's the idea that there's no end to that, that that's what the, the created state is supposed to be, just this eternal seventh day where we rest in, in the goodness of God, we reabide in the goodness of God, and that's what the, the author of the Hebrews picked up, and let's bring it back around, where he said, there remains, therefore, then, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. His argument, you go back and read it again, but it's like, there was this rest that God promised, but it hasn't been fulfilled yet, except now 
It is being fulfilled. It's being fulfilled in Jesus. It's being fulfilled in the gospel. There remains a Sabbath rest for anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works. I've been famous for talking about how the gospel is spelled D-O-N-E because it's what God has done, not D-O, the things that we do. And so what is it saying? It's like the gospel is entering into that Sabbath rest. You're resting from your works, just as God did from his in creation. Therefore, let us make every effort to enter that rest. What rest is he talking about? The rest of the gospel, where you recognize that you could not earn, and so therefore you cease where the only way to enter into God's blessing and rest is by abiding in it. So you enter that rest so that no one will perish by following the example of disobedience. In your growth guide, you'll find a check-in card, and on the bottom of that are those next steps that we're constantly promoting. Let me point out three that are applicable to this message. The first is to say yes to Jesus as Savior and Lord. Really, following Jesus is constantly renewing that yes, but it's also the first step is to recognize that you're going to recognize Jesus, say yes to his work on the cross in fulfillment of his promise to take care of your sin problem, and then saying yes to Jesus from that point on to walk with him and to surrender your life to him on a daily basis. But if you're doing this for the first time, I would encourage you to mark it when you check in online or to just put a double circle around say yes to let us know that you're doing that for the first time because we want to be able to celebrate with you and we want to be able to encourage you in your walk. Secondly, some of you need to cease work and abide in Christ. And a big part of that is taking the time setting aside the time to not only cease from work, but to abide by worshiping together weekly with your brothers and sisters in Christ. The third thing, some of you need to take the step of faith to give a tithe consistently. At least give something. Some of you are giving nothing. It's time to give something. Some of you are giving something. It's time to step it up to a tithe. Some of you are giving a tithe and are ready to go beyond that. The whole idea is to generously return to God for his purposes, what he has given to us, and acknowledge him in the process. So that's the structure that God has blessed us with. He wants to fill your lives with good things. Will you let him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a good and gracious God, and we thank you for that. We thank you, Lord, that you are always providing structure for him and giving shape to our lives, and that your desire as a loving Heavenly Father is to fill our lives with good things. Again, I pray that you would, in each one of us, beginning with me, show us what exactly we need to hear from what we have looked at today and show us exactly how we need to apply what you have said to us in your word and through this time together. And give us the courage and fortitude and faith to act accordingly. I pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.
Amen. Now, for those of you who are regulars, last week, again, we got rid of the tables, but that doesn't mean that we don't uh, still gather up. If you have kids in the children's ministry, we've allowed for time for us to circle up and talk through the live it out questions. So take a minute, circle up, rearrange the chairs if you like. For those of you that are able to stay, we would love to be able to do that. It's the best part sometimes of our time together on Sunday mornings. So enjoy, have a great week. I'll see you next Sunday.